how can we create quantitative data sets in theater that have the same kind of rigor as the science? It's incredibly rigorous. And I think we have the same when we capture a rehearsal process. And there are wonderful ways that I haven't yet imagined how it can be even further pushed. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Krista Doherty, the Chair of Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Jane Batsufin, the digital archivist on the Reimagining Tragedy from Africa and the Global South, or REACT project for short. This performance's research project is being led by Prof. Mark Fleischmann at the University of Cape Town. It seeks to create space for an extended interrogation into the vast body of tragic works produced in the theatres of Africa, using performance methodologies as analytic tools to gain purchase on the complex realities of the colonial aftermath by investigating current events in the post-colony beyond the theatre through the prism of tragedy. Of particular relevance to the theme of this podcast, the REACT project endeavours to challenge the Eurocentric biases and preconceptions of theatre studies in two respects. Firstly, by shifting the perspective to Africa and the Global South, thereby challenging the assumptions that align with what has been the predominant perspective in theatre studies. And secondly, of particular relevance to this podcast by engaging in art practice as a mode of research in a central way alongside more other conventional research modes and methods, challenging thereby its predominant methodologies. Jane Batsifin's work as a digital archivist on the REACT project has been crucial to documenting and making available the rehearsal and development processes in the project. In other words, treating the entire process as a mode of research in this podcast, we discuss the challenges of undertaking the documentation, including the ethical and IP issues that have arisen when recording both rehearsals and performances, and the scrupulously careful approach that Jane has taken towards this work. We also examine the larger implications of the digital archiving process and whether or not it could be understood as a resistance or an extension of the ever-expanding digital surveillance state. And finally, we look at the vast amount of material that gets generated through the digital documentation and Jane's views on the potential of AI for dealing with this problem. Jane, welcome. Your paper at the ARA 2022 conference last year I think was really important, significant, resonated with me a lot because Although the capacity of digital recording, digital documentation is frequently recognized, acknowledged as one of the reasons for artistic or practice-based research being possible, it is very rarely addressed in any kind of detail. All the challenges that go with documentation and archiving being explored and unpacked in the way that you did in your paper. And that really has made me want to talk further and more deeply with you about this topic. So welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me and especially for your enthusiasm to what I do, because I know many theatre academics don't quite understand it yet or haven't come around to this way of thinking. You yourself don't have, as I understand it, a formal background in archiving, archiving practice, or even databases or the kind of digital technology necessary to run sophisticated multimedia databases. I also understand your background is in fact as a creative, as a theatre director and a stage and costume designer. How did you come to this practice of digital archiving? It's a sad tale, but also it has a happy ending, I think, in that during the pandemic, my career as a theatre practitioner really died. I don't think there's a kind of way to say that. And I really needed to pivot. And I pivoted at a point which was just very circumstantial when Professor Mark Fleischmann, actually at the end of 2019, so pre-pandemic, said, can you record some rehearsals for me? And I said, absolutely, I can point a camera, I can hit record. And that was the beginning and what birthed 
now my career move into digital archiving with constant upskilling and having to teach myself and ask other people in this field that is incredibly small, even internationally. Yeah, so there are never any clear answers. It's always a way of exploring and discovering. Well, credit to you for taking that step into the unknown. And maybe talk about the unknown. If you could give us some background on the Retags project, more specifically, why digital documentation and archiving was such a central part of the project, particularly for Mark Fleischmann's vision of it. I'd love to share that. So RETAGS, which again stands for Reimagining Tragedy from Africa and the Global South, is a project that is a five-year research project that really wants to unpack and investigate how tragedy and the tragic take form both on stage and off stage. And that's kind of the basis of the research. And there are different streams in which Professor Fleischmann is going about this. One is doing field research with oral narratives. The other one is collecting archival productions that have already happened in Africa and the Global South based on previous Greek tragedies. And the third is this idea of practices, research, artistic productions that really want to further expand, like, how are we reimagining the tragic form? So I am being brought into those rehearsals in order, I guess, to bring rigor to practice as research as a way and a methodology of analysis. And how did you, as the digital archivist, go about the documentation process? Maybe you can talk us through that process, because I understand you've been working on two different productions, and there's a third and final production coming up. Yeah, so this third has now happened, and we go through the time frames of how things have shifted since the paper. It's been very exciting. So the first opportunity where I didn't really know what I was doing, other than going, I know what I'm filming right now in the rehearsal will be used later in the five-year research as a kind of a cross-reference, potentially, to the other works that are being made. So I really had to think about not so much what am I recording, but what am I not recording? What am I deleting? What am I excluding? And I became quite paranoid about that, I must admit. And I was very inspired by the thinking of the academic and anthropologist Michel Rolf Truyot, who talks about these beautiful four moments of historical production. And that really inspired me and really running through them very briefly because they're very interesting is that you have this moment of fact creation, fact assembly, fact retrieval and retrospective significance. And for me, I was really thinking around the first one, which was around fact creation and what I wasn't recording. What am I then putting into the historical archive? or not putting in it. So I kind of sat in the venue and I had a wide angle lens that was situated on a tripod, same spot, every rehearsal. And I was very considered about never getting my voice or my face or my body onto the documentation. And I also was really aware of how I was present in the space. So I was trying to be interested and alert but not overly reactive because then the performers during the improv start to play towards you. So you very much acknowledge that your presence is making an impact to some extent. Definitely as the rehearsals kept moving forward and there was a familiarity, it, people almost forgot that I was in the room, which was wonderful and kind of where we want to get. So that was the first iteration on Mark Fleischmann's Antigone Not Quite Quiet in 2019. And the thinking didn't really change much when I went into Ichele Letrisa, which was Mandla Mbotwe's production, because I didn't feel like I had to change it entirely, but I wanted to see how it worked again. And it was very different in a different director's rehearsal room, which is really interesting because there the cast were very adamant about recognizing me and calling me out by name or, you know, purposefully getting my voice on the recording and it became a game. So I'm very much more present in that archive. And then in the most recent one, in end of 2022 and mounted in 2023, which is Mark Fleischmann's Oedipus at Colonus, hashtag after Sophocles, I redid the same process again because I'm still deeply conscious of what it means to exclude certain things 
from the archive at this moment of fact creation. So I'm rethinking, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, and unpack it later about how we showcase it. I'm trying to reimagining how we showcase it, but I'm still trying to get as much data as possible because I don't know in five years where this research is now, what they'll be looking for, or even in 10 or 20 years, what researchers might find interesting on the rehearsal floor. So I still like the idea of making sure as much of it is there or eight hours every day, because I don't know what is possible to do with it just yet. Okay, so you having to anticipate future researchers whose approaches and preconceptions around the work are at this stage unknown. So how has your approach changed? Because you mentioned you began with a locked off wide angle camera, yourself completely out of the frame, no acknowledgement of your presence in the actual documentation process. Then I understand that when you moved on to working with Mandla Mbotwe's cast, that you changed your approach, you, you became a lot more comprehensive. And for a start, they were working mainly in Tosa and a language you're not very familiar with. So how do you, as a documentarian, before you even archiving, how do you deal with that challenge? Yeah, this is an excellent question and one that I raised before I even went on the rehearsal floor saying, this is not my mother tongue language. And this comes to the most important part and where one realizes that you can't be as objective as that you had anticipated is that one needs to catalog the work eventually for people to find it ultimately, hopefully. <laughs> so you give each piece of data keywords in order to help people navigate their way through the archive to find the material they might be looking for. And that is fine when the rehearsal space is in English. But as you point to, Mandla Mbotwe's Echele Lekisa was in Isikosa. As I said, I vocalized that challenge going in. And what I then had to do was I looked at the theatrical keywords. Like, am I looking at an improvisation? Am I looking at structuring? Because these things you can still see. Am I looking at movement, singing, body, sonography? What is informing the decisions? But the nuance is incredibly lost. And we acknowledge that in the archive. And ultimately, we are hoping to work with an Isikosa translator to assist with that process. But that means someone needs to also, like I did initially with Antigone Not Quite Quiet, where I had to retroactively go back to the archive and sit through six weeks of eight hours every day. We'd need a person to do a similar process. So Mandla's archive is absolutely not as rich to look through and to find as is the English productions. And that is a huge pity, but one we're very aware of and have acknowledged. And I understand as the documentarian archivist, you also have to deal with the challenge of very different styles of direction. Because I understand that Mantla tends to be a lot more happens off the stage, as it were, in informal discussions with the cast, responses to it. So... How do you deal with that when a lot of what is really important in the rehearsal process isn't happening in front of your camera? This is such a fantastic question, Christo, because it's one that sat with me throughout, right? Especially because my approach was film everything, capture everything. And at a point, both Mandler and Mark had to independently tell me, you've got to reach a point of comfort that you just will not because Mark would often go home and his partner Jenny, who was in the productions, they'd have long discussions and they'd come back with decisions made. So there's a point where you have to let go and go, there's no way I can capture everything. Or what one can start to do is point to it in the archive and say this improvisation or this moment in the rehearsal was born out of a discussion that happened outside of the rehearsal floor. So you can still point to these even moments of absence. And I think that's also important to reference. I hear you about Mark and his partner. Could you not, as archivists, have asked them just to run a voice memo 
when they were having these kind of discussions. <laughs> Can you imagine? I would like to tell you how much of being an embedded archivist is playing a game of go fetch. <laughs> and creatives really, I understand how much they have on their plate when they're in the thick of a creative process. And the last thing they're thinking about is how do I capture? And this comes back to our conversation, right? About not giving it the precedence that it really should have in order to make our research as rigorous, for example, as scientific-based research. So yeah, it was very hard to ask for things outside, and that's mainly because of the capacity of the people. And I understand with Mantler, he did a lot of his informal interactions or off-stage interactions through WhatsApp. Wasn't that a way of capturing these, these crucial discussions and decision-making processes? Absolutely. So it is all captured. I've got both the audio, the voice notes that were sent to each other. I've got the memes they've sent to each other. All of that is captured as an additional resource. However, that's not being published currently on the archive, again, due to the fact that I don't speak Isi Closa, so I don't know if anything needs to remain private. Uh, there wasn't really a WhatsApp group for the other productions that I was aware of, so I haven't been able to capture that to the same extent. I'm trying to think about the WhatsApp for Oedipus at Colonus. It was very administrative. Be here at this time. This is what you need to do. There weren't really many conversations happening. So, yeah, it's interesting. There are different avenues and there are different places outside of the rehearsal process where the thinking really does expand and happen. And I guess it's a question of like, how could you or is it at all possible to capture every avenue of a creative's thinking process? And I'm interested with... The third production, the Oedipus at Colonus, hashtag after <laughs> Sophocles. How have you approached that in the light of your experience of working on the first production with Mark and the second with Mantler? And have you adjusted your approach? Have you made changes to more effectively capture what is going on in the rehearsal? So I've definitely streamlined the process, that's for sure. So I sit there now, instead of retroactively going back, I sit with my laptop as the camera's running. The camera takes a 24-minute clip, so I time every 24 minutes so I know exactly where in the process I am. I know the keywords I've used before or the keywords that have come out of Mandler and Antigone not quite quiet. So I'm already cross-referencing the other two productions. So that really helps streamline that process. And then the conversations I've had subsequently about how do we showcase audio clips that don't belong to us, for example, or how do you edit out really difficult conversations that shouldn't be in there, or when people haven't given their permission to be used in the archive. These all are things that change my curatorial approach that comes into the showcasing on the digital repository site, which is a whole other ballgame, really. I'm intrigued. Why would you want to edit out difficult conversations? Aren't difficult conversations fundamental to what the rehearsal, the creative development practice is all about? Don't they tend to go from one difficult conversation to another difficult conversation? And if you're editing them out, doesn't it undermine the whole process of truly documenting what happens in the creation of a work like Oedipus or Antigone or any of these other retag productions. Mm. We haven't, and I say we, I haven't done a lot of editing in this way, but there's also a sensitivity when you're the embedded archivist that if people are having personal conversations as they do often on the rehearsal floor, or for example, if they've gotten entirely naked as part of the process to help it forward, but don't want that published. I think that's a beautiful time to have a conversation with an embedded archivist. And again, this can be pointed to. So in the archive, I will go this section or this has been edited due to this and this reason. So it's not like I'm erasing it and saying it never existed. I'm saying it's been purposely removed because it's not been given permission or out of sensitivity to the people involved. 
we're not going to be publishing. And I think it's very important to be aware that you're kind of creating a contract with the people on stage. And if you go, everything you do will be published, they're already going to be limiting themselves and curating themselves as they go. So they won't make the same kind of choices or they won't give in the same kind of energy that they normally would because they know, oh gosh, this is going to be published. So I'm going to be careful what I say and be careful what I do. Whereas where you go, do whatever you need to do. And after the process, if anything changes, you can come to me and we can have a discussion about why you wouldn't like it to be published. And I think that's about creating trust on the rehearsal floor. And perhaps I'm more sensitive to that as a director and knowing that you want the most from your cast and you need to create a sense of trust and safety for that to happen. So I've really extended that into the digital archive thinking as well. And as research, I mean, we're very familiar as... I think practicing research is that one needs to approach subjects, human subjects, as in as ethical a way as possible. Are you getting everybody involved in the production to sign consent forms? A hundred percent I am. Even if someone steps into camera for five minutes, if I don't have a consent form, then they get edited out. I think it's incredibly important to be aware. I know we live in a day and age where everything goes on social media. You know, even if someone's in the background and you don't know them, you put them up. And I'm hyper aware of these things. So everyone who is presented on the archive has given express permission and understands where their image or the likeness of their image is being published. And I think that's incredibly important. As you say, we're working with human subjects and we can't just assume that because people put all their information up on social media that we can just use their image as much as we like. I think there needs to be a huge concerted effort to change our thinking around how we gain consent. I think that's very important. I'm glad you emphasized that. Now, what also struck me about your presentation was... I think you were the only presenter at this conference on artistic research in Africa last year who actually used the word data. And you talk about building data sets. And it really struck me because we as artists are all very engaged with trying to conceptualize what is meant by research in the creative space. Yet the term that all scientists use all the time is data. And you were quite alone <laughs> embracing that term. So maybe you can talk us through what data sets do you see yourself building out of all of the video events, recording of WhatsApp conversations? What are the data sets that you're aiming to get to? Because I presume you have a lot more work to do on the back end of all this data. Yeah, and this is where everything comes up on the digital repository. So, yeah, I refer to all of what we're doing as data, and I like to think of what I'm doing very much in terms of science. So I like that you really realize that cross analogy, because there's for a long time, I think a lot of theater creatives, especially in academia, have gotten very upset that they're not treated with the same caliber as the sciences, that they're not seen as valued or that their work is not as important. And I kind of sometimes push going, well, where's the rigor in your research? And then you get the conversation that it's all qualitative. I feel that, I experience that, I believe that. And you're like, well, where does that come from? Sometimes people are very good at keeping journal entries and taking notes. I don't know many people who just take photos and videos through their thinking or their rehearsal processes unless it's used in the creative output purposefully. So I found that really interesting. It's like, how can we create quantitative data sets in theater that have the same kind of rigor as the science. And I love this kind of, it's a very simple analogy. If we had to think of scientists, if they collected blood samples like theater people, and they just said, oh, we had blood samples and we put some agents in it and there was reaction and it showed therefore that something wasn't good. And we feel that that's not okay. Whereas scientists would be going, you know, where was the sample taken? What was the temperature? How has it been stored? What was the agent that was put in it to create the reaction? What was the timing of it? It's incredibly rigorous. And I think we have the same when we capture a rehearsal process. And there are wonderful ways that I haven't yet imagined how it can be even further pushed. But I have this crazy idea that we can take all the audio 
So while I'm also capturing in video, I also have an audio recording going throughout is if we capture the audio, we get it transcribed by an AI system or software, should we say, and then we can put it into a data analysis or a text mining program. And we can then start to see how many times was the word protest used, actual solid evidence. And I find that really interesting. It's a little bit more complicated around video and movement, but we can speak to that later around the potentiality of AI to be used. So I'm really interested in capturing the rigor of what we are doing on the rehearsal floor. And I think there's a huge privilege in that the Retags project does have an external embedded archivist to do all of this, because I can't imagine where the creatives would be able to do this in the same extent that I am. But I think there are ways of going into one's research I know at least at the University of Cape Town, they're now very much promoting this idea of a data management plan as having to be a necessity at the beginning of your research. So that means all your research is referred to as a data plan. Where is your data coming from? Where are you storing it? How are you accumulating it? How much of it is there? And then I get a lot of panicked emails from the theater people going, what does this mean? What do you mean? What's my data? <laughs> Everything we do, every time you move, every time you sing, every time you speak, you're developing and you're producing data. And every time you don't capture it, you're losing very potent information, I believe, and stuff that memory won't recall, right? Because we're human and we're infallible and we make lots of mistakes. <laughs> so I guess this is really why I advocate so much for this way of digitally archiving the theater. And I think why Professor Mark Fleischmann has become a huge advocate as well is because I know he really supports this idea and has had to fight so hard for practices research to be seen as a valid methodology of at least, you know, creating your MA or your PhD. And now how do we take it a step further? How do we bring in even further rigor in our analysis and in our thinkings to justify or to give further reference or to cite. Imagine when you can go, I can actually cite this moment that the thinking changed or that I used this word in rehearsal. It was the first time it came up. I think it can offer an incredibly valuable source of moving forward with practices research. And a very interesting aspect of your thinking certainly as you presented it in your paper at the ARA conference, was having to accept that you couldn't be an anonymous, objective, archival, non-presence, but that you actually had to bring yourself, and you've, you use the phrase quite frequently already, of embodied, embodied archivist. Can you talk us through how your understanding of this developed and where do you see it going in terms of theatrical archiving? Amazing questions and the ones that I'm still discovering and thinking through what it means to have your own creative voice as the embedded archivist as well. I don't have answers yet. I think I'm trying to play them out at the moment on the Oedipus at Colonus hashtag after Sophocles way of presenting the archive on the digital repository and curating experiences around inviting people to enter the archive. So there's this wonderful phrase in Digital Humanities about making all of your data fair. That's F-A-I-R. You want to make your data findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. So everything I'm doing is kind of lending towards that, while also acknowledging that we as creatives also want to creatively engage with the archive. So there's a lot of thinking and ideas that are flitting about my head about how do we make creative archival responses as well. And one of them that I'm trying to work on is this idea of creating a video. I haven't worked out how it exactly is going to happen yet, but the idea that you can watch a clip from the final production and at any moment in that clip, let's say it's a five minute clip, you can go at this moment, this is where the idea got birthed from. And you can click on it and all of a sudden it will expand. Like, what is the history of the lineage? <laughs> What's the genealogy to get you to that moment that you see in the final? Or what was not put in in that moment? What was removed in order to like refine it? And I think it'd be quite interesting to work in that kind of creative sphere to present the archive as well. 
because I think it's quite overwhelming and daunting. I know Oedipus at Colonus itself alone generated four terabytes of data. It's a huge amount of data. <laughs> and not everyone will just gladly put in keywords and go search. So how can we think of ways of presenting, I guess, in visual essays, potentially, or in videos, or in interactive displays that can also guide people through the archive? It's been very interesting, Christo, as these like three productions have played out and going, well, how do I now cross compare them? Because I guess I'm the most well-placed person to do that because I've been in three processes more than any of the directors. I've seen the rehearsals they couldn't be at as well. I've been the most present. <laughs> so I hold a wealth of information as well in my own body and my memory archive. So I'm also finding ways to think through that as well and present that because ultimately an archivist can also be creative. It's not, it's not as dry as people imagine. Of course, there is sitting with Excel spreadsheets and just typing in information all day. But what do we do with that is the most powerful part of that question, I guess. I think related to that has been your interest in the notion of the living archive, which is strongly associated with that archival research unit at Malmo University in Sweden. And their notion of the living archive seems to me challenging to the point of being maybe problematic. Because if I think of being a researcher, going to the archive, you actually want a certain amount of stasis. You don't want the archive to be continually changing and evolving in an organic fashion. Whereas it seems to me the living archive, the concept has come out of Malmo University, is about an organic entity that will continue to change and mutate in response to contemporary developments. Indeed. I like hearing how you think around the problematics of it. I'm really excited about the fact that it's not dormant or static. And I think it's part of being involved in a generation that lives on the internet and how we pull from references and resources and build on things continuously. I mean, you just need to look at TikTok to see how people reuse the same bit of information to create new things. I can't speak on behalf of the sciences, but at least with theater, I think it's incredibly exciting that you know that your piece of data could be used elsewhere and then cited or referenced and built upon. Or for me, I'm very excited, especially, for example, with Mandla's Echele Letrisa, that people could go, this is how I would tag it. Amazing. Because I can't hold all these ideas. I don't, I don't know every field of academics. I couldn't possibly. But maybe someone from musicology would go, this is how I would tag Naomi Younger's exercise that he's done. And it continually grows and builds and maybe people use the clips in their material and point to it or use it straight up. I think it's very exciting that doesn't just stay a relic, I guess. I like the idea that and I can only hope that it gets used. The fear is that this archive just sits and does nothing and, you know, gains digital dust, if we can call it that. I'd rather people engage and want to change things and build on things in order to keep it generative. I've noticed that you've chosen to use a Creative Commons license and attribution non-commercial usage it's the fourth gen of the license so by choosing to license all the material in this way you really are inviting let's say future mashup of the antigone rehearsals and are completely open to whatever happens i mean we really are living by the open data science protocol by making everything available except the things that I mentioned earlier with you that are highly sensitive or that aren't appropriate to put on the archive with explanations and pointers to them. But otherwise, absolutely, we are inviting people to engage with the archive and use the archive for their own research. And some of the data that we've put onto the digital repository, we have given through a Figshare platform, a DOI. So some things can be properly academically cited 
which I also think is lovely. So you know, oh, wow, this has been mentioned so many times in an article or has come up. And then you can digitally trace where your creative output has gone. And I really like that as well. So there's a way to trace things with the DOI, but then there's also just this open source kind of mentality about like use it as you wish and treat it with the Creative Commons license that we've put on it and don't pull a revenue from it. So that's basically, we just like make it open source and keep on making it open source. So if somebody was to use material from your archive, let's say from the Antigone rehearsals, and they were to use that in a subsequent play, and as with most playmaking, have to charge an entrance fee in order to cover the costs of producing such a play. Would that be an infringement in your understanding of the license? Because to me, that's always been a gray area, that non-commercial. What does that mean in your understanding of the license? Mm. Well, non-commercial means it doesn't earn money, right? So it's not the case of like how much money. Okay. <laughs> if I use it my TikTok feed... And I earn some money off the number of subscribers I have. Would that be a violation? Because that would make it incredibly difficult to work with the material in any feasible manner. These are excellent questions and ones I don't have answers for immediately. And I think our discussions as well, like I know a lot of people have approached us specifically with needs and then we are open to discussions. I think the idea is that it is shared as much as possible I think we'll get hyper-protective if people are earning thousands or millions off of the material we've generated and we don't see a revenue from it. And I think that's very important. I think non-commercial really points to the fact that this should not be used with the purpose to earn an income from. But yeah, this is the thing with the digital age. I mean, how much are we going to police it? We don't have a full team to do that or create web scrapers to go looking for it. But I guess that's where it can go and where a lot of um, protection licenses like YouTube users or Instagram saying like you can or you can't use the song. And this is, I guess, where AI becomes very useful for kind of monitoring how things are used or not used in terms of licensing. I'm glad you got us onto the topic of AI because this is obviously crucial for the future of such work. You know, you've been talking about the vast amount of material that you've been recording. I mean, four terabytes just of the Oedipus, the Oedipus at Colonus. How are you going to manage all that material, just in terms of logging? Are they going to keep you employed for another five years after the five years of the project are over just to process the huge amount of video and audio material that you've recorded? How are you approaching this? And then... I'm very interested to hear your thoughts about what possibilities are being offered by AI. Okay, so to answer your question, it's just basically a manual process and it's me sitting with what ultimately we have roughly eight terabytes of data in total to date at roughly the four and a half year mark. And it's been me sitting manually with it. And again, I'm human. I'm going to make mistakes. Absolutely, I am. It is very time consuming. So once I streamlined the process, for example, with Oedipus, and because I knew what keywords I was using and that were in line with the previous ones used, after the production mounts, it's about three months of my time to clean up all of that, to go through it again, to ingest it into the digital repository. It is really painstaking, and a lot of people think it is literally just clicking a button and machines do it all, which is not the case. So as much as I can use nifty little Excel spreadsheet cheat codes, right, it doesn't really help much when you're having to describe things or what am I watching in this clip. So it's very painstaking. In terms of AI... I would love to work with it. I've got this actually love-hate relationship. Like I'm deeply fearful of giving it my own personal private data, but I'm very happy to give it the data of, of this research. And I've been linked to an AI software that is starting to read moving images. This is a new occurrence. And I think it'd be really interesting. And I'd love to, if they haven't scraped the web for this material already, I would gladly offer it to them anyway, because there is something incredibly nuanced about the theatrical 
moving image, right? Because you're using your body to express multiple things at the time. It's not just like person is walking from point A to point B. Person might be miming a journey through the jungle. How is AI going to start to realize these multitude of reading, you know, mime or body or gestural expression unless you feed it this material. And now there's this beautiful wealth of data that I've built up that said, here are the keywords. Here are ways you can look at this clip. So it could actually help AI. But it would be amazing if you could just put these videos through an AI software and then have it generate the keywords out at you. It would take lots of learning <laughs> and direction, I guess. And then the other one, as I was mentioning a bit earlier, is this idea and notion of using the audio to move it across to transcription and then put that already in software that already exists to generate the most popular words or where the links between words are happening. That only is as successful as the language that the software is in. And Isikosa, once again, is not a predominant one. So again, Mandler Show wouldn't benefit from such a system. But yeah, so there are, there are means out there it's also about like resources, financial resources to pay for them. But I think it would become its own project, to be honest, is looking into AI for theater endeavors, especially in terms of how we read moving image. I'm just thinking up here in Johannesburg, we have the Archive, which is an archive of South African contemporary dance. But at this stage consists mostly you know, they have managed to digitize some of the texts. It consists mostly of large numbers of cardboard boxes with clippings and videotapes <laughs> and a couple of hard drives that they've been donated of material. And the labor of turning that into an accessible and usable archive is tremendous and is potentially very, very expensive. So... Any way of shortcutting that. The resources, it's financial, right? Because you're paying for someone to manually sift through these. So even the process of digitization, someone has to press play. Someone has to put the tape into the machine that then transfers it or you know puts it into an MP4 format. So it would be incredible if there was AI to assist such a process, especially in the analysis part. And I don't think we're far off, to be very honest. I mean, the, the rate at which AI is working creatively is frightening. That's how I feel. Uh, but I think we can also work with it in certain ways. So, And I feel like it's important to embrace that, especially when it's time and when they're ready to work with such material to make it a more easeful process. Just a completely different take on this and what you're doing. And it's related to AI and the promise of AI. Is there not a sense in which this kind of digital documentation and archiving is contributing to the surveillance society that we've been alerted to? Is the rehearsal space in particular not somewhere creative shouldn't be scrutinized and recorded but should actually be able to work outside of the all-seeing eyes of cameras and CCTV that increasingly surround us in our lives. What is the case you can make for the value of this kind of surveillance? Let's call it that, surveillance, in a context of an increasingly surveilled social existence. Is it liberatory or is it contributing to the very state of being watched, being recorded, being analyzed that I think a lot of us are extremely uncomfortable with? What a hard-hitting question. I guess we could also say at the heart of a rehearsal, the performers know they're being watched. There's a director, they're outside people, they're there to be watched. In fact, I think a rehearsal space without someone watching falls a bit flat. I've also archived those ones <laughs> where the directors couldn't be present in the rehearsal and what happens there is a bit of a nightmare. So I guess the performers are already signing up to being watched, right? But now this idea of surveillance, I think it's interesting because 
Again, it depends on the rehearsal process and how much people do or don't want to share and that they also have agency on the floor, as I mentioned earlier. So it's not like everything you do shall be up there. It's you have agency. If you don't want something there, let me know and we can have a discussion around that. Also, you know where this information is going and you do have choices that you can make. So I think a lot about surveillance is that you don't know that it's happening, right? Or we pretend that it's not happening. So in this way, I feel like the performers on stage do have agency. They are aware of what's going on because, again, they signed those consent forms. They know exactly where it's being used, how it's being used. At no point are we trying to hoodwink the performers. In fact, the more they know, I think, the better it is. And again, this comes to the question of how do we validate the process of making, especially in practices research, how do we show evidence of the practice if we don't take documentation of sorts, of course, it doesn't have to be to the extent of all eight hours. But at some point, I think we do need to think more towards what is my process of capturing what is happening in order to point to the rigor of my research. You put it well, thank you. And can I ask the final production when it goes live after the rehearsal process, the director, the producers are, are happy with it. It's shown to the public. Are you involved in the recording of the actual performance? Is that recording included in the archive? So that's an excellent question. Yes, I am absolutely involved. After the show is like being created and we know directors, producers are never happy. They're always going to keep working. And that's what I love about live performances. It's always developing. So I make a point of actually filming multiple performances so that you get a sense of how it's developing over the two weeks or three weeks. And I choose very specific performances. So I'll normally do an opening. I'll do a Tuesday, which is quite like the lull. I'll do mid-performance and then I'll do final performance because these kind of shows have specific energies as well. And it's a wonderful analysis if you want to go, how does a live performance shift in energy or with the change in audience? In terms of publishing this, we don't do this publicly. And the simple reason is because there is an audience present. And I am not chasing everyone with the consent form who walks into a space. And I also don't want to assume that because you've entered the space, you're giving up your right to be published. So we do film it and we do keep it in-house. And if people approach us, we are open to sharing it with quite a rigorous NDA and non-disclosure agreement. Again, because people haven't signed up. Though to be fair, if you look at a lot of the footage, we've got the backs of heads of people. So unless someone knows somebody's laugh back to front, or there was a complication because Oedipus, a colonist, was done in the traverse. So I'm always filming somebody's face. So absolutely, in those cases, we do not publish it because of the reason of consent. But do you not think you're being overly scrupulous here? I mean, I'm a performance photographer. You know, I photograph a lot of contemporary dance and contemporary performance art. The people who are there are part of it. You know, to have the back of somebody's head in a shot <laughs> surely doesn't require that you have to get written permission from that person. I mean, they're at a performance. And it seems to me, if you're talking about creating this material so it's accessible to other researchers and to other creatives who can go to the archive, to hold back on these recordings of the final performances and how they've evolved over the season, it seems to me unnecessarily scrupulous. I hear that, especially when it is just the back of heads. But I have an ethical issue where you assume that if people are going to a public event, they give up the right to have their image placed on social media, for example. So I've gone to lots of events and all of a sudden I find myself on Instagram without any permission. And we just assume that that's okay because that's what we're doing. I will take full acknowledgement that I'm being overly scrupulous. I think I am. But I am very sensitive to this kind of information because we don't know who's entering the space. So that's one part of the reason. The other part of the reason why we're not publishing the full productions yet is that the fear is that someone will take it and just remount it, especially if we make it open source, right? 
So the idea is that we're also protecting that because these productions can still be mounted and presented at festivals. So it's also about protecting the final creative output until the moment at which it is no longer in circulation. And then I believe we will open it up. And this is the reason for the non-disclosure. So we're not entirely shut off from the idea that people and especially academics want to access it. But we want to protect the material, especially also from a creative point of view. I know that's the concern of the directors, and I think that's very understandable. Speaking to being like overly scrupulous, I have been deemed this across the board in the archive. So a lot of the times they use music in the rehearsals to warm up or to inspire something. Either I don't show the video or what I'm doing now, this has been a development, is I am muting the video where the sound is. And a lot of other archivists are just like, put it up. And if someone finds you out, then you apologize and then you take it down. So there are these approaches and you can be overly sensitive or you can just be more risk-taking. And I guess I'm just an overly cautious digital archivist. And it's not that there's a right or a wrong way to be. I think you need to know what your own ethical stance and how you feel comfortable with publishing people's images and people's information. I hear you. I'm intrigued by that example you give me, and it, it makes me worry a bit for, for the archive. I mean, for instance, a director who chooses to warm up the cast using perhaps Norwegian thrash metal versus somebody who plays some Eric Satie piano pieces. Surely that's very significant to the mood and approach of that rehearsal. And by muting that, you're losing a significant piece of information for researchers who want to understand. These are all incredible ways of thinking around it, right? And again, there's no right or wrong answer. So for me, I've decided that I mute because we don't have permission to play other people's music. I have respect for other artists as well. But what I have done again, as I pointed in the archive, we have a section music by and I will place like this is the music that's there. Because I fear the other option is just don't show the clip at all, right? Then you don't know it exists. So I've gone, you can still watch what happened. I'll give you an explanation and I'll point to the music that's being used. So if you want to go find it, you can go find it and listen to it yourself. Because I think that is better still than just not showing anything. But to publish other people's music without their permission, because they could earn royalties from it potentially but again maybe i am just being sensitive and i should just do it and just wait for an email that says unfortunately <laughs> we found that and here's a nice big fine <laughs> that comes with it <laughs> at this stage it's just a taking down you know just taking down although interestingly the rapper african rapper aka who was tragically murdered recently i see his estate is now being sued by <laughs> Some musicians who claim that he sampled from their music, you know, it's a common problem in hip hop without paying the required fees. So let's see how that goes. Jane, it's been really good speaking to you. I think there's lots of more issues that as we open up this discussion around the archive will emerge and will continue to emerge. But it's very challenging and important work that you're doing. So thank you so much for sharing with us. And I wish you well. Thank you so much for your time, for the engagement and for the questions and for the thinking alongside me. It's really lovely, especially because I feel very isolated most of the time. So it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Chair of Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Jane Batsifin, the digital archivist on the reimagining tragedy from Africa and the Global South Project at the University of Cape Town. The podcast was hosted and produced by myself with technical production by Elna Schutz. The music for this podcast was composed and performed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>